This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies, a podcast dedicated to exploring thoughts on philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about interesting things, so come think with me. All podcasters are always liars. This is the topic of today's episode, so buckle up. Now, when I say all podcasters are always liars, I'm, I'm a podcaster telling this to you. Like, like, I am a podcaster. I'm saying all podcasters are always liars. Now, in philosophy, this problem is usually stated as the sentence you are now reading is a lie or something similar. So, is this sentence true? Because if it is true, then it is a lie because it said that it was a lie. But since it turned out to be true, then it is a lie. And so, it is not true, right? Because it's a lie. If it is not true, that is, if it is a lie, then it is true because it said it was a lie and then turned out to be a lie after all. So it's true. But it's a lie. So it's not true. But it was truthful, at least about its falsity, which makes it false. But, uh, oh boy. Okay, so this conundrum is known as the liar paradox, or the... Epimenides Paradox, named after the Cretan philosopher Epimenides, and he's attributed with saying all Cretans are always liars. And though attributed to Epimenides, versions of this paradox can be found in thinkers as far back as Cicero and Aristotle. And according to philosopher Roger Scruton, the liar paradox is reputed to have caused the death of at least one ancient philosopher named Philetus of Cos. So uh, apparently... Paradoxes can be pretty deadly. So just be forewarned on this podcast. So throughout uh, Western thought, many have wrestled with this idea and sought a suitable solution to the paradox. But before we jump in, we need to define our terms. So what is a paradox? Philosopher, theologian James Anderson, in his book, Paradox in Christian Theology, defines a paradox as a set of claims which, taken in conjunction, appear to be logically inconsistent. So James Anderson, let me read that one more time. He defines it as a paradox is a set of claims which taken in conjunction appear to be logically inconsistent. And then Google likewise says a paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. And so a paradox is something that looks logically inconsistent but isn't immediately proven to be such. So it it could turn out to be well-founded or true, but it's just like this paradoxical thing. (laughs) That's a paradox. So uh, James Anderson actually gives us a really helpful paradox in modern times through an analysis of light, which can help us think a little bit more clearly on 
what a paradox is. So I'm going to read at length from his Paradox in Christian Theology. And concerning this, this paradox of light, he says, Prior to the 20th century, light was generally considered to behave in an unambiguously wave-like manner. As a matter of fact, in many experimental situations it does. For example, it can be shown to exhibit those inference patterns that characteristically arise from the interaction of waves. Scientists are now well aware, however, that in other circumstances, light appears to behave like a stream of discrete particles, as illustrated by the scattering of X-rays on collision with electrons. Conversely, electrons and other subatomic entities, hitherto treated as simple particles, are now understood to exhibit wave-like behavior under certain experimental conditions. In short, a wealth of empirical data supports the conclusion that the fundamental building blocks of our physical world can be described as either as waves or as particles, depending on the manner in which their behavior is observed. Indeed, there are even cases in which quantum entities exhibit wave-like properties and particle-like properties at the same time. This characterization of quantum physical entities is counterintuitive at best and arguably incoherent. It is extremely difficult to see how one and the same entity can exist both as a wave and as a particle, since these two types of entity have apparently incompatible properties. For example, a particle is located at a point in space, whereas a wave is distributed throughout space. Yet the fact remains that electrons and other quantum ob objects behave as if they were both, such that descriptions of their behavior in either terms of waves and particles are inevitably paradoxical. So all that to say, paradox is not uh, just for the ancients, it's not just for the Cretans, it's not just for Aristotle. We find paradoxes today, even in our quantum physics. So now with a better understanding of paradox in hand, let's return back to the liar paradox. All podcasters are always liars. Now the major cause of this paradox is its self-referential nature. Since it refers to itself, it leaves us with an odd, like, snake-biting-its-own-tail type feedback loop. A feedback loop, you'll recall, is that loud screech that you hear when a microphone picks itself up through the speaker. It like amplifies its own, its own noise <laughs> until we all just want to die. It's a terrible, terrible thing. So that feedback loop, that self-referential nature, is what gives rise to this particular paradox. So let's go back to the paradox. If the sentence said, the sentence you read after this one is a lie, then there would be no problem because it wouldn't refer to itself. Likewise, if Epimenides had said, all Cretans besides me are liars, then there wouldn't be a problem because he would not be referring to himself. We could test the sentence to see if it's true or false in that case. But because, in our cases, of the podcaster and Epimenides, the speaker includes himself in the class being referred to. Since it is self-referential, that is, we end up with this kind of Gordian knot. Now, Gordian knot is uh, an intricate problem, uh, seen to be insoluble, in its own terms. So, a uh, little history on that. It's a knot tied by Gordius, king of uh, Phrygia, held to be capable of being untied only by the future ruler of Asia and cut by Alexander the Great with his sword. So it's a little bit of mythology there, but a Gordian knot is a really tough problem. But back again to the paradox. One modern solution is to argue that the sentence is neither true nor false. It's just a failure of by valence, meaning it's a failure of the principle that every proposition is either true or false. So this would be simply just neither true nor false. It would fall into a third category. 
It has no truth value. Others have said, since this falls outside the truth and falsity, then it's just sheer nonsense. It's gibberish. So then given either one of these conclusions, there is no problem. We've solved it. Boom. Hooray. Podcast over. Well, philosopher Boss Van Frossen says not so quick. He says that before we begin to feel too smug about this, however, we must face a second paradox, which Van Frossen calls the strengthened liar, and which was designed especially for those enlightened philosophers who are not taken in by bivalence. Bivalence, again, the principle that every sentence, every proposition is, is either true or false. So the strengthened liar says, what I say is either false or neither true nor false. So this is strengthened in that the, the first liar paradox says, this sentence that I'm now saying is a lie, but now it's even stronger. What I say is either false or neither true nor false. So you can't just say, well, it's, it's neither true nor false because that's one of the options here in the strengthened liar. That's the second option. So it's either false or neither true nor false. So if it's neither true nor false, then it's true which means it's false. And if it's false, then it's not neither true nor false, which means that it's true, which means that it's false, which means that it's neither true nor false. And so <laughs> the strengthened liar is ridiculous. It's even harder. And it's it's awesome. It's a really good piece of philosophy. So uh, Van Frossen continues, if we now ask whether the sentence is true or false or neither, we find that each of these answers is absurd. For example, suppose that we, suppose that what he says is neither true nor false. Then clearly it is either false or neither true nor false. But then what he said was the case. So what he said was true. And now we've seen properly caught our sophistication with respect to bivalence notwithstanding. And that's Boss Van Frossen in Presupposition, Implication, and Self-Reference in the Journal of Philosophy, Volume 65. So Van Frossen seeks to answer the strength and liar paradox by appealing to his and P.F. Strassen's notion of presupposition in order to argue that the liar and the strengthened liar paradox result in failures of presuppositions, and thus they are failures of bivalence in neither true nor false. So his argument is actually very, very technical, um, but I think I tend to agree with him. I'm not super comfortable with saying that a, a proposition is neither true nor false. Um, so... Let me think about. So anyway, sorry, I, I need to explain presupposition. Van Frossen uh, piggybacks off of P.F. Strassen, another philosopher who talked about these, what are now called Strassonian presuppositions, which are named after P.F. Strassen. A presupposition is something that must be presupposed. So it, it's it's logically presupposed prior to analysis. So Van Frossen and P.F. Strassen would say this is a the liar paradox is a failure of presupposition because it's the thing that it's referring to, the presuppositions of the thing being referred to fail. So if I were to say that uh, the king of France is bald, a presupposition of that sentence is that there is a king of France. Now, if there is no king of France, then the king of France is bald. That sentence has a failure of presuppositions, neither true nor false, because there is no king. If I were to say the king of France is bald, that's a false statement. I'd be buying into the fact that there is a king of France, but there's not. So I'm not going to buy in. I'm not going to say it's false because that would be to acknowledge a false presupposition that there is a king of France. That at least is Van Frossen and Strassen's notion of presupposition and failure of presupposition, which Van Frossen uses then to answer this liar paradox. My solution is, is close. Maybe it's the same. I think it's a little bit different. I, I'm not comfortable with saying that there's a failure of bivalence. 
You know, I think that propositions are either true or they're false. But what I think is that the liar paradox is actually a pseudo proposition. It looks like it has semantic content, but upon reflection, it's actually meaningless. So we don't need to jettison bivalence then. We just put the liar paradox in the category of nonsense, saying it's, it's not a proposition. So we still get bivalence. We still get this principle that all propositions are either true or false. But we have to say, you know, this one that seems like it's a proposition, this sentence that I'm now saying or this sentence that you're now reading is a lie. It, it really looks like it has semantic content, but it doesn't because it's self-referentially absurd. It's an absurdity. It doesn't actually make sense. Now, I could be totally wrong here, but that's where I'm landing right now. You can feel free to correct me. I welcome it. I'm still trying to think through this myself. Okay, so I know that this study of paradoxes and the liar paradox specifically is pretty dizzying, but I thought it'd be interesting to note that the Apostle Paul actually addresses this paradox in his letter to his disciple Titus. And so this is a paradox that actually has found its way into the Bible. Paul writes to Titus, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in their faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. As you heard, Paul takes a little bit of a different tact than Van Frossen. Paul just barrels through the problem. He agrees to it and uses it as an opportunity to instruct Titus in how to handle Cretan opponents of the gospel. Paul's point is, is a pastoral point of instruction. And his instruction concerns a particular group of Cretans rather than uh, Epimenides and the whole set of Cretans generally. Paul says to quote their own prophet who says that all Cretans are liars and then use that as an opportunity to rebuke the Cretans and point them back to the truth. Okay, which is sweet. I mean, that's a great point. But the paradox that Paul addresses turns out to be a different paradox than the liar paradox and the strengthened liar. Since Paul is quoting one of the Cretan prophets, Epimenides, and since it is reported speech and not Paul himself making the self-referential claim, the paradox transforms into what Van Frossen has termed the weakened liar. Van Frossen explains that the phrase Epimenides the Cretan is reported to have said that all statements by Cretans are false clearly cannot be true. Right, So it's not self-referential, it's reported speech about a third party. Van Frossen says, for what he said was said by a Cretan, and hence he has implicitly asserted its falsity but we can consistently hold that what is said is false. This just means that something said by some Cretan is not false. And this is not as implausible as Epimenides seems to have thought. Okay, so we see that the weakened liar is weaker than the others in that it is false and can consistently be held to be false. Boom, so no paradox after all. But wait, didn't the Apostle Paul say that the weakened liar was true in verse 13? If Paul says that it's true, and we can see that it is obviously false, then is Paul stating a falsehood? Is Paul wrong? And if so, you know, is, is biblical inerrancy, the view that the Bible speaks truthfully on everything it speaks on, is that biblical inerrancy just out the window then because of what Paul just did? Are we doomed to uh, irrevocable skepticism? 
I, I don't think so. And here's a couple reasons why. Let's look at a couple notes from study Bibles, and maybe they can help us out. So the NIV Zondervan study Bible note to Titus 1.12, it goes like this. It says, the point is not that every Cretan is like this, but that decadence and dishonesty are a threat to the churches Titus oversees because they are deeply embedded in the everyday life of the surrounding culture. And likewise, the HCSB Apologetic Study Bible says, Epimenides' characterization was not universally true, but it was true in reference to Paul's opponents. And then lastly, the ESV Study Bible says, Of course Paul means this as a generalization not necessarily true of every single inhabitant of Crete. The ESV also drives the point home that the Cretans were not super great people. And they go on to quote Polybius' statement that uh, it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. That's from Polybius's Histories 647. And quoting Cicero's statement that moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. And that's in Cicero's Republic 39. 15. So, although Paul was not unfounded in agreeing that all Cretans are liars, in context, it seems that he meant that Epimenides' statement is true not just universally of all Cretans, which would include Epimenides and thus commit him to a falsehood and perhaps destroy the doctrine of inerrancy, but, uh, you know, I don't know. Instead, he was saying that the statement was particularly true of the Cretan opponents of the gospel in the circumcision party, which does not include Epimenides himself and thus does not entail a false proposition. Okay. I know that was a lot. I actually think we might be overanalyzing this just a little bit. Well, Parker, you're the one who brought this up. I know, but let's keep going here. I think it might be overthinking it. I think Paul is just employing a little bit of satire, a little bit of Jewish satirical humor. And so I think this is a great opportunity to bring in Peter Kreeft and his book, C.S. Lewis for the Third Millennium, in which he gives this really nice overview of Jewish satire. And it's so helpful that I just want to read it at length. Kreeft says that the heart of irony is the contradiction between what seems and what is, between appearance and reality. This distinction is the origin of both philosophy and science, for both philosophy and science presuppose the questioning of appearances to find the hidden reality, something neither animals nor computers do. Animals and computers cannot be ironic. He goes on to say that irony is the subtlest and highest, most divine, form of humor. He that sitteth in the heavens Laughing is not relieving his nervous tensions, or needing a cosmic relief from an onerous life, or sneering, enjoying other people's discomfort, or tittering at erotic suggestions. All these theories of humor fail because they don't go to its profoundest root, which must be rooted in God somehow. Everything good is. God is an ironist. God is even a punster. Puns are linguistic ironies, for he created a world where one thing means many other things, like a pun. Meaning in the God-created universe is multi-dimensional. As Van Balthasar put it, truth is symphonic. The only unambiguous, univocal, non-ironic, unfunny language is mathematics. Computers have no sense of humor. Kreeft goes on to say that, uh, he quotes a little bit of Thomas Aquinas, and then he goes on to say that God is Jewish, therefore his universe is full of Jewish humor, which is just quite a claim. I love that. Continuing on, Kreeft quotes from Daniel Bell, the famous Harvard educator and a Jewish guy himself, who describes Jewish humor as thus, Jewish humor is not jokes. A joke is a contrived situation, a manipulated effort, a commodity of the moment. Jewish humor is wit. 
the play of words, the compression of language to reflect the compression chamber of life. Kreef goes on to explain that irony is the heart of Jewish humor, and it's actually this clash between appearance and reality. The humor questions the appearances, even the most apparently obvious truism in the world, the law of non-contradiction which we've covered in a previous podcast. Kreeft explains a scenario where a rabbi held court, hearing two women with complaints against each other. The rabbi listened intently to the first, and persuaded by her tears, he said, You are right. The other woman protested, Wait! You've not heard me! The rabbi listened to her, and again persuaded, said, You are right. Then the rabbi's wife, perplexed, said, How can they both be right? And the rabbi said to her, You are right, too. <laughs> Uh, which is great. And then he comes to my favorite story. This is just, it's so good. This story alone was worth buying the book. He says another example of overcoming logic itself. Sidney Morgenbesser, a Jewish philosopher at Columbia, was confronted at Oxford by John Austin. J uh, this is J.L. Austin of, uh, of the book How to Do Things with Words. He's super famous in linguistics and philosophy of language for coming up with speech act theory or at least being one of the first proponents of it. So anyways, uh, this guy, Sidney Morgenbesser, Jewish philosopher at Columbia, he was confronted at Oxford by John Austin, the British logician, who said to him, Mr. Morgenbesser, I am told that you believe that two affirmatives can make a negative? Now, that is just not possible in English. In our language, two negatives can make an affirmative, but two affirmatives cannot make a negative. To which Morgenbesser replied, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is just the best. I love that. So if you if you say two negatives, that can make a positive. But you can never say two positives to make a negative. And this guy, employing Jewish irony, he just goes, yeah, yeah, which is so fantastic. <laughs> I love that. And so that's kind of the spirit I think Paul is, is using when he's replying to the liar paradox. He's being ironic. Oh, Epimenides says that Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, that, that testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Paul is making a joke. He's playing on the liar paradox to, to tease his Cretan opponents, while also warning of their need for repentance. So I think this view seems a little bit more reasonable and charitable to Paul. But, uh, you know, if, if you want to argue the point, I'm all ears. Though I do reserve the right... To call you a liar. Well, we could talk about this a lot more, and perhaps someday we will, but for now, that's going to have to do it. I hope you learned something cool, and I hope you thought about something in a new way. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.